Our guest in this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast is Chris Clearfield. He wrote a book called Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. The premise of this book, the thesis of this book, is that when systems become so efficient, so incredibly devoid of slack, that they run so tight and perfectly in the best of situations, all it takes is something very simple, something unexpected, something small to destroy that efficiency, which leads to a massive cascade that can cause a meltdown. You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. Hello, Breakdown listeners. I have a fun and special treat for you this week. Um, It is certainly different. Uh, Today, I am sharing a podcast with you that I was actually on. It's David McRaney's fabulous podcast, You Are Not So Smart. And I was a guest over the summer. And David and I Man, do we do we get get to it? Um, we talk about toilet paper shortages. We talk about why people join social movements. We talk about my book Meltdown. We talk about his uh, upcoming book, and it was a really really fun and. <laughs> I mean, I know I use the phrase wide-ranging a lot to describe these conversations I have, but it was a fun and extremely wide-ranging conversation. And I am really delighted to deliver it to you today. This is Thanksgiving week when this is dropping. And so you might have an hour and 53 minutes while you putter about the kitchen chopping vegetables, uh, brining your turkey, if that is a thing that you will do. If you are in these United States, uh, otherwise, um, I hope you use this hour and fifty-three minutes of thought injection from David and my discussion originally on his podcast. You are not so smart. Please enjoy. How does somebody get into this line of work? What 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 attracted what attracted you to this, and how did you sort of find your way into making this a living? So, so that's uh, there are so many levels at which to answer this question. Um, uh, one is I was always a science geek. So I studied physics and biochemistry as an undergrad. Um, I worked in a lab that did systems biology. So, mm. you know, kind of taking the sort of the sort of old like linear view of of kind of biology as a, a process and thinking about it in terms of of modules and and loops and feedback and on the, on the cellular level um, mm. as well as on the kind of bigger systems level, and so that was sort of my first um, kind of training in thinking in this way. Although I didn't realize it at the time, uh, and and then I was I was going to go do a PhD, but I ended up getting kind of swooped swooped in swept in swept in by the 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 gravity of wall street so mm. i started my I, I applied to phd programs i deferred and then i got kind of sucked into wall street um and started my career there i started in 2006 uh as a trader um kind of pricing and understanding and and trading f- different financial products in the market and then uh lo and behold a couple years later the whole system collapsed and I started getting really interested in why the firm I was at did actually quite well during that time while um, the kind of whole edifice of, you know, the the sort of 
civilization of modern finance collapsed around it. And so I, I got really interested in why some organizations were able to thrive in this really uncertain environment while others really, really struggled. And I thought that was a, it was just kind of a question that stuck in the back of my mind. And, um, I was re I was also learning to fly at the time. So I was reading oh, wow. a lot about why, um, you know, pilots crash perfectly good airplanes into, into things. Um, and realizing that there was kind of a convergence there, but it really wasn't until Deepwater Horizon blew up in 2010, that was the the big um, BP oil spill in the Gulf, that I just had this moment that was like, oh, wow, this is much, much bigger. Like, this is everything. This is much bigger in scale and scope than what I've been thinking about it. Um, and I, after a couple of years, I, I teamed up with um, my friend Andrash Tilchik, who's a, a sociologist and is now a strategy professor at the University of Toronto, um, and another friend at the time. And, and we just started thinking about this stuff. And I uh, quit my job in finance and, and just sort of made a bet that, you know, if companies are, are losing $50 billion to these big catastrophic failures, they're going to start to look around and, um, try and figure out ways to kind of buy that risk down. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was the, that was the start of it. And then the opportunity to write the book about it came after another couple of years of kind of thinking about it and, and working in this space. When I was looking through the book and I, and I saw the deep water thing, I was like, Oh my God, I'd forgotten that it happened. And, uh, and I live, uh, I have family that live on the Gulf coast and I live not far from the Gulf coast. And so, uh, we, there was a, there was a definite like, um, feeling of like, I guess this is just, uh, something we all have to deal with, but why is this can, how many times, right. you know, like it was just so it's, this seems like something they would have known better than to let happen. Right. Uh, <laughs> it just felt avoidable in a way that apparently it, it, and it is apparently, but they didn't. And your book addresses this in, 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 um, minute detail. Also, you talk about this and it reminds me, you know, my, um, I think the thing that got me, mo that started me on my path of science communication was the connection, the series Connections with James Burke. And the very first episode of Connections is about a blackout in New York City and all the different things that happened because of the blackout. Yes. And he opens the show by holding up a little timing switch and says, do you know what this is? No, you have no idea. And it's because mm -hmm. of this that and then he goes through all the thousands of things that happened. Right. Um, and it reminds me of sort of the approach of your book, which is uh, obviously excites me about it. So awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we can use, we can use deep water, um, you know, without like plumbing the, the deep technical depths of it. We can, we can use it as kind of this example. I think of this, this bigger phenomenon where, you know, what we're talking about is accidents that are, at their fundamental level caused by complexity, right? Mm. Where um, you can look back and say, wow, they should have done X, Y, and Z. And yes, they should have. But the whole point is that in the moment, in the tunnel, as some people call it, some kind of accident people think about it in this way, like in the moment, those people thought that they were doing the right thing, right? Mm. Like nobody showed up on that rig that day to kind of to blow themselves up. Um, and in fact, ironically, they had just been given a safety award, I think, the the morning that the explosion happened. Um, and so there's sort of so much to talk about there. But I think the 
this idea that complexity itself is a source of failure. And then um, there's a, a kind of another variable that's important too, which is tight coupling, which is mm -hmm. basically how much buffer there is in the system once things start to go wrong. Um, a, a deep water drilling, it turns out, is a very tightly coupled system. You know, once you once you drill into this reservoir that is deep under the water and and under vast amounts of pressure, there's no off switch. You can't just you know you can't shut things down. There's no pause button. Um, and so this combination of complexity and tight coupling is sort of at the heart of what was the Deepwater Horizon accident, as well as kind of loads of other failures that that look like this. Mm -hmm. Well, let me um, just sort of start there with uh, you mentioned that uh, you had in the research, you had found this uh, sociologist, Charles Perrault, I think is how you pronounce Perot, it. Perrault, yeah. Charles Perrault. Perrault. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of us have, you must have really enjoyed the Chernobyl series. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking I've, that popped in my head a lot looking at your book because Chernobyl is, it, it, is just such a series of, of little things here and there that led up to this massive uh, yeah. generating a sun on, on the surface of the earth. And this, I have to be honest, I, I didn't watch it because <clears throat> stuff like that can give me a lot of anxiety. Oh, wow. <laughs> if you've ever, given, it's given the most the horrifying thing ever. Uh, <laughs> it is. If, it, if you've ever gotten anxiety from anything like that, this program, the Chernobyl miniseries is, it gave me anxiety within 15 minutes. I was like, Oh Lord. Um, and and sometimes, sometimes I'm in a place in my life where I can like, like play with that anxiety and delve into it. But other times I'm just like, ah, this is too much right now. It's too much, but I do recommend it. Uh, because you talk about how Perot was interested in Three Mile Island and, right. uh, the, your book uses the term meltdown and the word meltdown, uh, became a thing that we use to talk about other things because of yes. all this. So uh, if you could just sort of start there and give us and tell us a little bit about how he plays into this and what happened at Three yeah. Mile Island and all the rest. Yeah. So he is a he was just a I mean, just a a brilliant guy um, and uh, super generous with his time. Andras, my co-author, and I went and interviewed him for a couple of days uh, um, in New Haven, which is where he he lived part of the time. He retired as a Yale professor Um and he just passed away recently, which is a, a real loss. But um, I'll tell you, somebody who who has thought so deeply about these issues, but was also so incredibly humble and willing to like enter into a real authentic discourse with us about like how he thought about things and how there could be different ways of thinking about things. It was just he was really kind of phenomenal and a real kind of intellectual role model. Um, but he was a, you know, he was a sociologist. He wrote about like, before getting involved in the three mile Island stuff, he wrote about, I think organization of new England textile mills or something that's, you know, very like classic old school kind of institutional sociology. Um, but there was a, a woman on the, the, uh, president's commission investigating three mile Island, who was also a sociologist. And she sort of in the early stages of, of the, the accident investigation, she looked at it and said, you know, this is, there are organizational factors here. And if, if we want to understand organizational factors, we should get Chick Perot involved. And, and so he did get involved and he, really, you know, dug into the materials, dug into the timeline of the accident. And what he realized was that th this kind of 
view that what the problem here was that the operators had done the wrong thing. That was really unfair. Mm-hmm. And the reason it was unfair is because nobody understood the logic of the accident, the sequence of the engineering failure for months after it happened. And even now there's actually some fundamental questions. We don't really know how the whole sequence started, but what Perot did was he looked at this accident and he said, well, look, if we don't understand the engineering details for nine months of persistent investigation, how could these operators in the moment possibly understand what the right thing to do was? And there were all of these confusing indications in the control room. There were alerts that were delayed by hours. There were lights that were, you know, lights and indicators that were confusing. And so what Perot said is, you know, this is really a cheap shot to blame the operators. In fact, this is a systems failure. This is an, an organizational failure. Mm-hmm. And so he wrote something about Three Mile Island specifically for, for the, the accident investigation. And then he and a team of graduate students started looking at these kind of disasters, uh, not, not nuclear meltdowns specifically, but these kind of big systems failures that had lots of different factors in them. And over time, they assembled this taxonomy of how to think about them. And what they found was that if a system was both complex, meaning uh, a couple of things, it was hard to understand what was going on in real time. It was opaque and not very transparent. And it also looked more like a web than an assembly line. So there were all of these interconnections, sometimes a bunch of unexpected interconnections too. And when a system was complex and when it was tightly coupled, when it didn't have a lot of slack to respond to these kind of problems, when there wasn't a big buffer of materials or safety margin or even just time, then it was more likely to fail in these unexpected ways that could have these big consequences. And Mm so what he, 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 the way he typified it is that the, in systems that are complex and tightly coupled, these kind of accidents are actually, in some ways, the expected behavior of the system. Oh. And so he wrote a book called Normal Accidents, which uh, came out in, the uh, I think, 1984, and kind of really got this cult niche following around it. And uh, it was a really, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating book, and it was a really um, interesting way to, to delve into these I think the way that a lot of our modern systems work these days. I love normal accidents. What a great title. Good job. Isn't uh, that a great title? That's <laughs> so good. Well, let's talk about the, that part of normal accidents. I like this aspect of it being, yeah, sure, people are fallible and people are um, just people. You know, they're not they're they're not machines. But that once you get a lot of people together and you get in a network of decision making, there's some predictability to the system. And the two things that you tease out are these two ideas, complexity and tight coupling. Let's look at them one at a time. When you say complexity in the framework of your book, in the framework of this idea of of trying to mitigate these sorts of cascading disasters, what are we talking about? We're talking about a bunch of different things. We're talking about parts of the system that are connected in ways that we don't expect. So... A good example is the the financial crisis. Oh, yeah. So one of the things that's interesting about the, well, the 2008 financial crisis, I feel like now that we're recording to 2020 in the midst of our, our new economic uh, and, and societal meltdown, we should be more specific. So the, the 2008 financial crisis 
you know, one of the things that happened is that banks and other market participants l unexpectedly linked themselves together by building models that all relied on the same set of kind of s fundamental simplifying assumptions. And when it turned out those assumptions were wrong, the failure cascaded through the financial system because it affected all of the participants. So there was this kind of hidden underlying structure connecting things that that was hard to see from the outside. So that's, that's part of complexity. And I think part of what that highlights too is another aspect that isn't just about the connectivity, but it's about how hard it is to understand things, how hard, how, how opaque uh, what's going on is. And I think the financial crisis is a good example of that, but physical systems are a really good example of that too. So in, in the Three Mile Island accident, one of the things that's true about a nuclear meltdown is that you can't just send somebody in to go take a look in what's going on mm -hmm. because of obviously radiation, because of the way the reactor is built, right? So, so there is a way in which you have to rely on these indirect indicators to understand what's, what's happening. And, and that's another hallmark of complexity. Uh, Deepwater Horizon is the same thing. You know, Deepwater Horizon, not just a clever name, right? That rig had drilled the deepest well that humans had ever drilled uh, just a couple of months before it, it moved on to the site where it ultimately had its accident. Mm -hmm. um, and so, again, you know, you can't send like you can't send a diver down five miles under the Gulf to take a look at what's going on or to to fix the problem. So this idea that there's a big part of this that's just the the kind of fundamental inaccessibility or incomprehensibility of these systems is a big contributor to to their complexity. And so this, the thing that uh, goes along with this is tight coupling. How does this interplay with the complexity? So a, a system that's, we have, a, there are a lot of systems in our lives that are, are complex, but not tightly coupled. So, um, you know, in a system that is um, like, in a system where there's a lot of slack, you have a little bit of a of a buffer to recover from errors. So we can think about like the the ultimate human system for for many of us, which is getting our kids to school in the morning or you know getting our mm. kids ready for the day. And I think that can be a complex process, right? There there are all these different things you have to gather. There's all these different parts, you know, depending on how old your kids are, you might need homework or, you know, winter jackets or boots or whatever. And so there there are kind of all of these things that have to come together in in the right way. And and you don't always, you know, you don't always remember them. You don't always have visibility in in kind of what's going on in real time. You don't always know that oh, you've left the lunch upstairs or or whatever. But even even in this system, which again, admittedly is relatively simple, we see these kind of mistakes and, and errors pop up, right? Mm. But they're often relatively easy to recover from. So, you know, if you forget uh, a kiddo's lunch, you can either go back and get it, or you can often, you know, give them money to buy a lunch at, at the school. So there is a lot of, also, you know, if you're five minutes late, it usually doesn't matter, right? So it's it's real, it, you know, having to go back home and pick up something else is not a big deal compared to, you know, the kind of time, like the time scale of the school day, right? So it's sort of these perturbations, they stay small and 
they don't cascade throughout the system. So a system that's tightly coupled, on the other hand, is one in which your tolerance for mistakes, there's not a lot of buffer to recover from. Right. And so, you know, actually one of my favorite examples of this is, is air travel, right? So if you imagine, you know, going from like flying coast to coast, um, going from say Seattle to Atlanta, if you're on a direct flight, there's not a lot of complexity, right? You make it to the airport, you board your plane, Mostly the plane just flies to Atlanta, lets you off in Atlanta, and and you go on your merry way. Um, but if you've got two or three connections, uh, now all of a sudden there's a lot more complexity in the system. So if you've got to go to Chicago and land in Chicago, um, there might be a winter storm. You know, there might be a thunderstorm. There could be a mechanical problem on the second plane, um, or you know, if if there's not a lot of tolerance in the system, if there's not a lot of slack, if you only have 10, you know, let's say 45 minutes to make your connection in Chicago, then any small delay in Seattle is going to mean that that kind of delay propagates through the system. So you don't make mm. your connection in Chicago, then you have to, you know, figure something else out. Whereas if you've got a two or three hour buffer uh, to make your connection, then it sort of doesn't matter what the source of a small disruption is. You've got time to recover from right. it. So I think that's a way to, to think about tight coupling too. That's just really that interesting. I like that because the, uh, I'm thinking of it as like you have these giant nodes that are coupled, which is your connecting flights, but then you, 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 you slink yourself down into a one level down or, or going up, however your metaphors work in your brain. Uh, and you, get to the next level of complexity and you're like, okay, now I have to deal with all the other people going to that airport, getting to the parking lot, um, getting the ticket, right. getting the, the luggage, all, there's a lot of stuff that's going to take place before I can even begin to get into the pipeline. And then you go another level down and it's all the other human beings in the airport and what could go wrong there. And then you get down to another level of complexity and you've got the air the airplanes themselves and the people right. directing them to their destinations. And then you can go down to the aircraft, one aircraft at a time. Yes. And then you can go down to the individual systems within the aircraft that work together. And then, I mean, I remember one time I had an entire trip. I had to stay overnight to, to get my next flight because the overhead compartment wouldn't close. And this right. is, un this is unacceptable. And so we had to wait for the overhead compartment to be repaired before we can take off. And that for that to happen, there had to be a certified and I'm assuming someone who was in the, the union, someone who had to, who was qualified and right. to come and repair that had to be found and then taken to that airplane. We're all sitting on it when there are a uh, hundred of us, each one of us with our own reasons for being on board. And then they get, when the person finally arrives an hour into the wait, they put a piece of duct tape over the, <laughs> over the, the overhead bin. They duct taped it shut. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's officially sanctioned duct tape. I think it's, it's <laughs> no, I mean, it really is. It's like a, it's a specific, like it's, it's called speed tape. You can sometimes see it on, um, on like, uh, fairings on like non load bearing components on the outside of planes. That can be a little trippy to see like a duct tape on an engine nacelle or whatever. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm thinking now in your, what you're talking about, like for me, I had not put enough slack in my, you know, 
part of this whole drama. So right. uh, I had to end up staying another day, which thankfully I had that extra day. I had put enough slack in my schedule afterwards so that I didn't have to miss the lecture I was going to, but I could have, I could have missed it. Totally. And there are a thousand other ramifications of that delayed flight, not only for the passengers, but also for the employees and the, the, the airline itself. And I assume that airlines do as much as possible to have some slack within their system because it is one of the most complex operations that has to run like exactly the way it runs or else. Well, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll flip that, actually. I think airlines do as much as possible to have the least amount of slack in their okay. system. Tell me more. Because, because that's what's efficient, right? So that's that's and that's kind of the crazy thing about this. And and actually I think, you know, just to dip into our current COVID moment for a second. Please do. I mean, one of the things that I think is really interesting about you know, the 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 kind of overriding optimization of business for the last 50 to 70, you know, for the last half half century plus has been efficiency, right? And, and there are like efficiency and scale. And so there are loads of reasons that people wanna make their businesses efficient, right? And it's everything from, you know, not having a ton of parts in the warehouse. So this whole idea of just-in-time supply mm. to not having, you know, uh, um, more workers than you need in a factory or, or whatever. Um, and of course, the, the more efficient you can be, the lower your kind of per unit economics are, the cheaper it is to produce things, and the more likely you can outcompete your competitors who are less efficient. So there's this real kind of, I think, winner take all dynamic when you think about efficiency as a thing to optimize for. But what we're seeing now is that efficiency is much more of a local optimum than a global optimum, mm. right? And I, I mean that not global in the world, but global in the sense of kind of, you know, the landscape of parameters that we could think in. And so one of the things we're seeing now is our our drive to efficiency means that we don't have spare capacity for things. We don't have, we have a lot of businesses that, that kind of don't have any, um, any slack in their system. So, you know, if you were a manufacturer who is depending on, you know, the delivery of goods from from China um, with maybe, you know, a, a four to six week delay for shipping, like we are, you know, four to six weeks into this thing and you have just run out of of all of the components that you that you needed. So there's this real, I think, kind of fascinating way in which the drive for efficiency really encourages us to make our systems more and more tightly coupled. This is great. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the, the, there has been, I mean, this is like going back to the fifties when we're talking about automating everything, like efficiency was the primary goal. And especially in a capitalist you know, society where efficiency means more money, like, and also the, uh, there's the, the idea that the more efficient things become, the more time we have to do leisure activities and everything else. And, um, yes. and I, can't, I can't imagine any time in my life where someone ever had suggested that more efficiency would be bad, except in some Orwellian sense, but, mo but not in like a California startup utopian idea of efficiency where the, the bright shining future is the future that involves self-driving cars and 
and people delivering things to your door and, and uh, self-optimization through everything. Right. Like, like that's, that idea is all about like mega super, everything is tightly controlled and planned and scheduled and it's super efficient. Um, yes. And I'm hearing you. I mean, then air, air, airlines are a great example of, of that. And I feel like you're making an argument that that is a road to ruin. Well, I, I think it's a, um, that, that I think is the real strong form of the argument. The argument that I would make is that we need to make these trade-offs more explicit. Mm. So we talk in the book, we frame this, this idea that there's this paradox of progress, right? Complexity gives us features. It gives us benefits. It, it makes our technology better, but it has these unintended consequences. Um, and tight coupling makes things more efficient, but again, it has these unintended consequences. And so like when I work with, you know, companies or business owners, one of the things that I am helping to do, one of the ways I see my role is to just bring a perspective that says, you know, yes, that will be more efficient, but how do we think about the consequences to resiliency or like, yes, sure. You can add all of these features to your product. How does that increase the likelihood of a surprising series of fail, like a surprising series of small failures kind of cascading into something that's much bigger? What are some things that as a person who's been thinking about this for a long time, this is what you do and you have this book, what are some things maybe that people haven't noticed that you definitely have noticed or you feel like you're noticing in all this that are examples of the complexity and tight coupling um, causing systems to break down in, in this very specific context? Yeah, that's a, that's a good, uh, that's a good way to put it. So again, I'll, I'll play in the same language you used before. Like there's a bunch of different levels of analysis so we can think about this, right? Um, one of the things that was kind of cool in the book and in, in, in right towards the end of the research, I ended up interviewing this, um, historian of science who studied the bubonic plague, um, you know, so the, the kind of the spread of the plague in the middle ages. And there's this really nice phrase that stood out, which is that, um, somebody labeled this, this time, the golden age of bacteria. Hmm. And their argument was that you had all of these conditions in terms of humans living closer together, you know, there being more, more rapid, um, both sea-based and overland transportation between cities. Um, and so you had an increasing amount of connectivity in the world. And yet we didn't have any of the technologies that we think of. We didn't have antibiotics. We didn't even have a germ theory of disease. We didn't have really, you know, hand washing. Um, we didn't have the kind of modern ideas of sanitation. And so the, the argument that this historian made was that this really represented, this kind of time period represented this golden age of bacteria. Um, and so we use that metaphor for the book. We, we call today the golden age of meltdowns, right? Mm. Because we have all of this connectivity and the kind of tools and the theories are out there, but, but predominantly we don't use them. Predominantly we're kind of continually surprised by the same thing. And, and I think that was what, that's one of our big overarching themes of the book that like all of these accidents, all of these things that look distinct are actually as real underlying contributors have complexity and tight coupling at their root. We keep being surprised so, by the same thing. I love that you said that. <laughs> that's what, It's such a great, right? mo it's such a great motif because it, 
I love anything yes. that says these are elements of how systems interlock and that system yes. could be anything. And, yes, and exactly. so these are just truths of systems. And, um, and if we, if that's true here, it'll be true there. And if you're not paying attention to that yes. and you're not making, if you're not taking this into account, then the other truth of what happens when you don't take this into account is probably going to happen eventually on a long enough timeline. So, totally. so go ahead. So, here, here, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole because you, you gave me permission to do that earlier. Please do. So Please do. <laughs> I don't know if you, do you remember, do you remember who Tay, Tay was? This is the social media experiment. No, I don't um, think so. Okay. So Tay was a Twitter bot that I think a group at Microsoft. Oh, yes. Yes, I do remember. Now, right. And so, so Tay was, was supposed to, it was supposed to be this kind of tween personality and it was supposed to sort of like absorb the ethos of Twitter and, um, you know, develop its own kind of way of talking and, and tweeting. And so it actually tweeted out things. And what happened to Tay was that um, there were a bunch of people who, who trolled it, right? So a bunch of people, you know, kind of taught Tay really sort of horrible, racist, anti-Semitic things. And so in a matter of like 12 hours, Tay became a Holocaust denier, like, you know, just like crazy, crazy shit. So, um, the team who worked on Tay, obviously, right, super smart people, right, were kind of surprised by this. Um, and you can tell they were surprised by this because they let it happen. And it turned out to be this, you know, PR blow up for Microsoft. They, by the way, I think to, to Satya Nadal's credit, he wrote them a note or, or called them and said something like, you know, hey, you know, folks, that was that was a good try. Like, thanks for thanks for taking your risk. Thanks for doing something kind of experimental, um, which is great, right? There, I think Microsoft has done a, a good job of really sort of trying to push the the growth mindset internally at, and in the company and really get people to take risks. But what I'll say is that we've got these elements here again, right? We've got complexity and tight coupling. Complexity is that it's social media. There are all these feedback loops. You never know who is gonna be interacting. And so the feedback loop here, or at least one of them was, you know, people started trolling Tay and getting other people to troll Tay. And so you kind of got this, you know, you got this acceleration in what Tay learned in this very quick amount of time. Um, I think that the tight coupling bit didn't have to be there, right? So that's what I would say that as soon as there was any indication that this thing was going off the rails, um, this should have been a system that was like sort of tightly monitored and and tightly controlled. And by not paying close attention in real time, Microsoft research people essentially, and actually I shouldn't say that, I don't even know if it was the research group, I don't remember who actually managed it, but but these folks, they essentially increase their amount of coupling by by sort of intentionally just letting this thing go off and running and decreasing their response time. And 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 that's kind of perplexing to me. And it's just, I think, a great example of how this thing that seems so unique and idiosyncratic is actually tied into these same two concepts. It's the same as Deepwater Horizon. It's the same as the financial crisis. As you said, it's the same mistake, just in you know slightly different clothing, but the same underlying dynamics. So I think you look at coronavirus and and you look at the world that we live in today and you you know it's it's incredibly tightly coupled. It's incredibly complex, right? So what's fascinating about it is that you know even 50 years ago the chance that 
this particular virus would have started in central China and then, you know, only a few short weeks later shut down my kid's school in Seattle, like that is a degree of connectivity that is not unprecedented, but certainly way, way higher than than what the world has been yeah. in the kind of history of, of of humans, right? So I think that's part of it. And then I think you look at the the tight coupling element of it. And one of the things I like to think about is there's this fabulous essay, and I you you may have read it. It's it's great. It's called um uh leverage points in a system. It's by this woman, Danella Meadows, who was a at MIT for a while and then was a professor at Dartmouth. And she just has this essay where she talks about kind of systems dynamics and like what are the ways you can change them. And um you can change the connectivity of the system, which if you think about the way coronavirus works, changing the connectivity is what we're doing now in our in social distancing, right? So we're trying to reduce the kind of number of interactions, the likelihood that the virus jumps. And so we sort of fundamentally change the topology of our society to change the connectivity of our systems. But there's another way you can influence system, which is by changing the way information flows in the system. And I think hmm. that in in the US and North America, at least, that's the thing that we really missed, right? We missed that we had this leverage point of testing as a testing and contact tracing early on as a way to tremendously alter the trajectory of what we've seen. And I, I'm obviously not the first person to say that, but I think that what I think is is interesting about this moment that we're in now, and of course, you know, this will change next week, but we're in this moment now where we're we, we see people relaxing or talking about social distancing measures being relaxed. So we're talking about kind of changing the system back to what it was to this higher connectivity state. But I don't think we're backing that by making sure that we have these kind of systematic programs of, of sort of, of, of testing and getting information to flow through the system so we can apply our resources where they're needed in a rational way. And so I think what we see is we see we're dealing with a complex system, and one of the parameters that we can actually change is actually how much tight coupling there is in the system, how much of a buffer we have to respond, um, and and we're just we're not doing a good job of framing things in those parameters and and responding in that way. Mm -hmm. And that's just the that's just the public health response. You know, there's also the business response and the and the kind of macroeconomic response and all of these other responses which I think follow some of those same, some of those same trajectories. You have, you, use, well, you use other examples too. You talk about a department of corrections thing. You talk about uh, a nurse uh, giving the wrong pill. You talk about wall street. You talk about the, we, the airlines as we've mentioned, and now we are seeing it here with this. Um, we could go into examples forever, but I, I feel like when we, with our limited time, let, let's talk about some things, you know, you can do about this. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I like that you sort of begin this conversation uh, or you, you, one of the ways you talk about it is if you are going to take a trip to Mount Everest, the, you h highlight that the people who will help you do that are really good at this. They have taken complexity and tight coupling into account and mountaineering companies actually are a great example that you could crib from. I'll just throw that up there and let you talk about that. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, one of the one of the ways to put this is that sometimes you can't change your system, right? You can't change the complexity of the system. You can't change how much coupling 
there is in it. But what you can do is you can sort of work with that system in, in different ways. And so I think that, you know, Everest is an interesting example. I mean, some of the things that following the the kind of disastrous uh, 90, I think it was 96 season on Everest where, you know, a, a lot of people died. There was a lot of bunching up at the mountain. Um, what a lot of companies realized is that their guides were trying to do too much. They were in charge of, you know, not just guiding the trip, not just climbing the mountain, but also dealing with logistics and, um, you know, having to hustle around to get stuff through customs. And, um, you know, some of them got like dysentery because they, they didn't have the right food. And so they got exposed to, you know, pathogens they weren't used to. And so there's just this way that we can think about at the margin, how can we, even if we can't fundamentally change the system, even if we can't fundamentally change coronavirus without a vaccine, what are the things we can do to kind of work better with it and work more skillfully with it? Mm. Um, one of, one of the, the, the phrases that I, I love is that the antidote to complexity isn't simplicity, it's transparency, mm. right? It's being able to understand what's going on in real time. And, and even when we can't change the underlying characteristics of the system, we can often take steps to add more information to it. And, and that's, I think, on the level of sort of thinking about systems design. You can also think a lot about the way that, that humans operate within a system and, and the way that organizations operate and the way that leaders can set us up to have a different relationship with, with failure and with our systems. And I'll, you know, and they, you, you mentioned that they, they even could get right down to cooking. Like they make sure they, they, yeah. they attend to the food, it's preparation and everything else. So that it, it reminds me of what you were talking about, getting your kids to school. There's yeah. there. So there's a thousand, thousand things that can happen between that must happen for all this to work. But right. But with getting your kids to school, it, it, each one of those nodes can fail and then the whole thing doesn't fail. Um, and that's luck. You know, hopefully your house <laughs> different, your mileage will vary depending on your household. Um, <laughs> totally. But you, but like, you know, if you can forget a lot of things, you can make a lot of mistakes. You don't necessarily need a pilot's checklist to get your kids to school. Um, though that would be helpful, but the, the, with the, the mountaineering, they've made it so they have introduced a lot of acceptable failure points in addition to trying their best to make sure that those failure points don't occur. And so it's like, it's this, it was Slack. They've created Slack. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's important considering you might die. So uh, right. the, the, go ahead. Yeah, I feel, I feel you have a point to make. Yeah, well, I, and I, because I think you've hit on something really important here, which is, which is that a lot of our modern systems look a lot more like Everest these days, right? And so, you know, we talked, we already talked about deep water, right? We talked about the fact that that deep water was not a clever name. If that accident had happened, you know, in in 150 feet of water it would have been way easier to respond to. It would have been way easier to cap. It would have been way easier to, to work with. If it had happened on shore, it would have been even easier. So it's, it's not to say that these, these kind of factors around complexity and tight coupling were 
uh, unique to Deepwater Horizon, it, but it is to say that kind of as you're hitting on, like some systems are more are are more fragile and have worse consequences of failure than others. And what we see in the modern world is that more and more systems are moving into that kind of danger zone where these these kind of relatively small perturbations cause these huge, huge failures. Am I wrong that I feel like you're the expert to ask on this? Isn't that what, you know, my domain being there's always a psychological ex explanation for a thing, a behavioral explanation. In the beginning, when we were kept, when we kept asking, hey, how come all there's no more, how come there's no toilet paper? Like there was a, 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 surplus of psychological explanations. And I, I even came so almost, almost made a YouTube video about it. And I'm glad I didn't. Um, <laughs> because I was like, well, you know, it was probably this, this, and this, the, which the psychological factors were part of it, but uh, there, there have been a number of really great explanations that say, no, this was about a supply chain thing about it being something like you were talking about earlier, where there it's very tightly, it's so, it's so efficient how this works. Right. It's not like we don't have plenty of toilet paper. There's a lot of toilet paper on this planet in warehouses. It's not like people just started shitting more than all than ever. And it's not like that. That wasn't the issue, but there was a slightly increased demand grocery stores and department and stores that sell toilet paper usually just buy enough, just enough, like just enough. So there's so there's so much great to say about that. So I didn't know that fact, that fact uh, gives a lot to build on. Right. So, one of the things is we're we're back now at this conversation that we just had about efficiency, right? So why do they do that? Well, they do it because they're efficient. They don't want to waste shelf space. They don't want to waste storage space. And they have really good models that predict demand in normal time, right? right. So and, and to add to this, to help you out a little bit, the toilet paper is unique in the fact that it takes up a lot of space. <laughs> like right. it's, a, it's, a, it's a one package of toilet paper. It takes up a lot more space than one can of beans. And right. so you would think that, that the stores would sell Even out. Even though there's roughly a one-to-one -one ratio between them. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's perfect. <laughs> so you would think, uh, both biologically and economically, that people would run out of beans before they would the toilet paper. Right. Uh, you'd right. think it, exactly. the, the shortage would happen on one end of the alimentary canal and not the other. But right. it didn't because that's not – the behavioral thing impacted both of them equally – but the result was not equal. I throw that up to you now. Yeah, so I, I I love that. I mean, so right one is is the the amount of tuning and optimization that we have done in our systems for the normal day, right? Like that that's kind of what that I think is one of the big things that um, we are seeing now. That normal is actually the kind of normal range of parameters that we can operate in is really narrow relative to the total range of parameters that we can operate. Mm. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that, that coronavirus is highlighting. So I think that, I mean, that's part of it, right? The other thing is that in, in systems, there is a delay. So mm. think about the delay in different levels, right? So, um, I mean, on, on, on the kind of far end of the system, right? There is a delay in, because I, I, I bet I'm going to go out. Let's go out on a limb here. No pun intended. Um, I bet the people that make toilet paper are also not buying and storing, you know, months worth of lumber to make months worth of toilet paper. I bet they're buying that in real time. Right. So if all of a sudden there's a spike in demand, they've now got to go and get more trees somewhere. 
and that that's going to that that is a delay that's going to flow back through the system. There's a great thing called the beer game. Have you ever heard of this? Mm, I don't think so. Oh, it's great. So the beer game is this sort of tool of to to teach systems thinking to groups and um I won't. I don't want to spoil it because it's really fun. I I use it in kind of workshops and and training sometimes because it just it makes this point in an experiential way. You're someone is cast in the role as the operator of a convenience store and they're selling a particular kind of beer, and suddenly the demand, the kind of customer demand for that kind of beer spikes because it's in a music video or something like that. And what the beer game shows is that. That spike in demand, the way it translates itself from the customer to the, um, sorry, from yeah, from the customer to the convenience store to the distributor to the supplier to the brewer, there are that perturbation that might result in more orders from the convenience store to the distributor, which are then fulfilled with a delay from the brewery. Um, the, the delays and people's typical response to those delays means that the system can really oscillate wildly in the amount of beer that's ordered and delivered over time. And it's a really fascinating, um, it's a really fascinating way that our kind of natural, you know, the environment we evolved in is an environment that gives us relatively good feedback on most decisions in real time, right? If we eat something that's poisonous, we get sick, we either die and then our ancestors learn not to eat that thing or we throw up and we learn not to eat that thing. Mm -hmm. But what's really interesting about systems and, and complex systems in particular is that there's all these delays and feedback loops that we often, A, don't have the perspective to see and B, even when we do, we can't keep them all straight in our brains at the same time. And so we end up with all these weird nonlinearities. And I think... Um, this toilet paper thing shows that when we've like tuned our system so carefully, these nonlinearities are kind of like more likely to, 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 to happen with these weird, these weird spikes. It's, it's wonderful. I, um, and to the add of this conversation, I went ahead and grabbed, I put it in the uh, chat for the, um, I see that. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, it is exactly what you were saying. It's, it was about efficiency because the explanation apparently is, we increased our, the average household is using 40% more toilet paper than usual because people are at home instead of at work where they were currently uh, taking uh, time off uh, and um, taking, taking some company time. Um, and, <laughs> and so most of the, the toilet paper, if you're wondering where the toilet paper went, that he explains in the article that it, is sitting in Starbucks. It's sitting in Target. It's sitting like not in on the shelves, but in their bathrooms, um, because it used to go to office buildings, college campuses, airports, and that sort of thing. And nobody's using that toilet paper. But the industry is set up to distribute these two different places, and it's very tightly efficient. It's super efficient that they expect that's where most of the demand is going to go. And when it's when the demand just simply shifted to households from workplaces, uh, the supply chain is not set up for that kind of efficiency. And it broke down just enough that there wasn't enough on shelves for people to go get. And that may have then also contributed to this sense that, oh, no, there's a run on toilet paper, which then created a 
little bit of a run on toilet paper. And, and the whole thing just gets bizarre after that. I'm popping in because I forgot in the interview to even say the name of this article. It is What Everyone's Getting Wrong About the Toilet Paper Shortage. It's on Medium. It's written by Will Oramus. So I, I want to ask you about this because I think this is a really interesting thing that that I think you're – when you think about human behavior and decision-making and all the stuff that you focus on, mm-hmm. which is kind of this sort of – you know we have this overlapping Venn diagram – what you have done here is you was you were kind of embedded in the consensus psychological explanations of this, and then you read this story. I presume this medium story you sent me was the the source of it. Yeah, and so you read this story, and that pivoted your thinking for sure. So yeah, kind of, yeah. so so yeah. Tell me about that. Why kind of how did that? Why do you think this story pivoted your thinking? Why did you think that that kind of um, because when I started to research to make a YouTube video about this, um, I could not find any consensus. Uh, I would see a lot of things where people would talk about what causes a run on the market. And, and, and there was um, a famous example when Johnny Carson, during the gas shortage of the 1970s, he just did a joke on his monologue one night and said, uh, you think the gas short- shortage is bad, wait till you see the toilet paper shortage and there was a big like laugh and he just made it up there was no toilet paper shortage <laughs> but then that week everybody ran and bought all the toilet paper to try to beat out that shortage which then right. created a shortage which then right. fulfilled the prophecy which then took the um there's always in any kind of uh in any kind of network there are thresholds of conformity and thresholds of response to anything. Right. And this is the the, the Granovetter, Mark Granovetter stuff. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's a, you know, this goes back to the research. This, this research goes back to uh, how the, how hybrid corn like was uh, first introduced to the United States. Oh and, yeah. This is the, the ever, uh, what's his name? Evers? Ev, Ev Rogers, right? Yes, Rogers, yes, adopt, yes, yes. Adoption diffusion. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, go ahead. This, so the same thing happens with anything where there are just some people who are subversives who will be the first to do something or the first to say, no, thank you. They're punks. And that, that and that's going to be within in any system. It could be a positive, it could be a proactive right. or, or it could be a disruptive behavior either way. In this case, you've got people who have sort of a prepper mindset, and they they get alert alerted to a salient signal within the network. Hey, toilet paper might be uh, running short. This those become the first wave. They're the early adopters, if you want, if you if you will. Right. Yeah. That's they great. go. They go because so this became the explanation because we've seen it happen before. It happened once before with toilet paper, and right. those people bought too much. That made the second more hesitant group go, "Wait, there maybe there is something going on." So they get their toilet paper, and because it's such a giant package, you can definitely see when there's a shortage faster than you would for other products. Plus, it's also something you'd really rather not run out of because toilet paper is one of those things where um, the second you run out of it is also the second that you know, you desperately, like, it's not like running out of rice. You run out of rice. There's, you're... there's I mean, in, in the conventional, right, there's low tolerance. It, there's low, it's, 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 it's tightly <laughs> coupled. There's yes. low tolerance for running out of toilet there's, paper. And, it, and doesn't there matter are what, substitutes, but it's, it's a cultural shift. Totally. Like there's no, the, the moment you need toilet paper, you need it that second because to go, 
you need to be able to wipe your ass to go get toilet paper, right? So right. the so all these factors are behavioral and psychological, and it seemed to make sense. And I was reading all these different takes, and I just kept noticing that would get mentioned, but then all the other explanations would be different. And mm. it seemed that the the thing that bothered me most about it was like, but we've got, it's not like it's a, all, that might happen for a day, but then you just order more toilet paper, right? Like there's a, it's not like a, there's a gold or diamonds or, or plutonium. This is not a rare substance that, that right. you can really right. run out of. Um, so it just, I actually, and, and then the tone of, of the idea just became kind of like finger wagging. I, I, I sat on it for a minute. I'm like, I don't know. And when, this explanation came out that was it directly as far as messaging goes, as far as a persuasive message is concerned, it had that uh, two factor thing where uh, some of the most pers persuasive messages are the ones that go ahead and give you the argument that you already have in your head first and tell you, right. It's the feel felt found thing, right? Where you, I know you feel this way. I understand you feel that way. I felt that way. Other people though, have looked at this, I've looked at this, and I found that this seems to be a more reasonable explanation. Let me explain it to you and see what you think. And that's the way the message was presented in the article. And it just seemed, it, this person had a deep knowledge of the, of the situation. And it was, it highlighted that it's still a behavioral thing. I mean, this is still a system that is controlled by human brains. It's just that the the issue took place not on the end of the consumer so much as it on the end of the manufacturing side of it about decisions made in that regard, and it's well, still. I think. Go ahead. Let's. I I think you and I have we are sitting on a grand unified theory of this whole thing, which let's let's do this because I think this is great. So, the other the other kind of threshold theory that I think about is um, Mark Granovetter, who talks about. Um, rioting, he has this kind of model of people's propensity to riot. Have you, do you know about this theory? I am deeply, yes, because I, because I just finished, okay. <laughs> I just finished, I just finished a book about how people change their minds. And the third part of it is about social change. And you can't talk about social change at the level of psychology without talking about thresholds and right. getting into Duncan Watts and Granovetter and all the rest. Right, exactly. So, yeah. 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 So the, I just, do you think your do you think your listeners would appreciate the the fifteen uh, second? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Let's get into it. So, the way I think about it, and why don't you you check check me if I'm wrong, is basically you know just like you were saying about preppers, like some people are well primed to join a social movement. Other people need more social proof before they do. So mm. the people that are well primed, they, you know, there's going to be a first mover, and then somebody's going to look around and says, "Well, one other person is interested in this. I'm going to join them." And then somebody else has a threshold of two people, and they're going to say, "Oh, now two people are interested. I'm going to join this." Dot dot dot. You know, up to fifty, hundred, fifty thousand, etc. And so there's just this idea that you can have a distribution of thresholds in the population, and if you have enough people joining at different kind of moments to support that you can get this kind of massive movement that ultimately incorporates the people that needs a hundred thousand of their peers to, to get involved. Does that, does that capture it for you? It does. The, here's, uh, so this is the way I explain it to, I have this in a lecture that I did just, uh, it was the last lecture I did in the before times, uh, where I was explaining this very thing. Um, I like to talk about it in terms of waiting to get into a classroom because, uh, I happened to give this lecture at a university. I knew people would understand. So, but this also, you could also use a restaurant if you'd like, if, or maybe a bathroom, but 
you imagine like you're waiting to get into a classroom at your university and you walk up and there's one person waiting at the door and they're like playing on their phone and you face this decision as to whether or not you're going to check the door right. to see if it's locked. I love it. Or you're going to trust that that person already did that. And that's why they're waiting. And in the ter- in sociological terms, you'd say your, your signal, that's an external signal versus an internal signal. Your internal right. signal is built by your priors. So all the experiences that you've ever had with classrooms. Always check the door. That's, that's part of it, right? All of your experiences you've ever had. Plus, your disposition, which is has to do with your nature, nurture up into that point. Perhaps you were born a certain way, and perhaps you have had experiences your entire life that have made you a certain way. And add to that specific experiences in, in the university setting. Let's say you once did that, and it was locked, and you looked like a fool. Or one time you opened the door, and there was a class still going in there, and you were like, oh, sorry. This is going to affect your threshold for conformity. So... That is the factor at play, the internal signal versus the external signal. At the beginning, that's all that's going on. But let's say you're the kind of person who is like, I, I trust that person's checked. I don't want to risk it. Well, then another person walks up. Well, they see two people waiting. And there are very few people in the population who are so bold and so punk, I like using that word, is that yeah. who will be like, ah, fuck it, I'm going to check because I don't, I, I don't trust anybody, right? So... That it's very unlikely that person will show up. Uh, the third, the third person that shows up will probably go. Oh well, there's two people waiting, and they know must know something I don't. Right. And, and they stop. It, once there are three people waiting, it's almost impossible that there will be anyone who will come along. Right. What happens now is the external signal is way more powerful than anybody's internal signal, and right. the cascade has begun. And yeah. it's guaranteed now almost that the entire class will come and just wait. Because there's no new information being added to the system. If the professor happens to open the door inside the empty classroom and goes, hey, what are you doing? That's new information added to the system and the cascade shatters and collapses and everybody goes in. Uh, But if that doesn't happen, they may. The professor doesn't show up or they wait or there's all sorts of things that could cause it to continue. This is that that is, as we were talking about earlier, that's just a dynamic of systems. That's just a a thing that is true. And it can happen on giant scales. There are examples all throughout history where social changes could have taken place 10 years earlier or 10 years later. The only factor that was at play was, did the thresholds of conformity within the network line up so that people could affect each other? And, and oddly enough, what it comes down to is each person is a node in the network and each node has a individual threshold of conformity. So the re, like the way smoking there were, there was anti-smoking information going all the way back to the, the 1940s but it didn't cascade through the system until somewhere in the in the in the early 2000s really that's when smoking really became like gross right mm-hmm. uh, and people started having smoking bans the way the reason this is such a big deal to me and the reason this was seemed applicable to the toilet paper thing and it was at a certain point it it was yes. Um, is that this is people often try to frame this as being viral, and the there's a lot of Gladwellian kind of you know thinking on that because of uh, the idea of tipping points. But tipping right. points don't 
only work when you're just passing information itself. Like all it takes is for the next node to just get the information. It's like a rumor spreading through a network. Yes, that will spread through a network depending on who's connected to who. When you're talking about a decision that involves a social cost, then people have to weigh the risk and reward of committing to the decision or, and, or committing to the attitude change. And that is going to be based off of how many people are in your network, your personal network, and your threshold of conformity. And those two factors will decide whether or not you flip your node. And when your node flips, yes. it will then affect the nodes around you. And that's what makes it so bizarre is that that's why you get these curves. That's why you get S curves. Because, and that's why so things that are destined to catch on don't catch on when they when you think they ought to because the the right. the network is this giant ocean of complexity that has to line up just the right way for it to cascade. So yeah, it's 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 fantastic. I love that stuff. That's awesome. So I I think that the the tie-in here is is exactly that. It's that you know, you've got these these kind of low threshold people in this toilet paper system, right? The preppers, uh, as you as you labeled them, and so they are the first movers. Now, if the system had a lot of buffer in it, if the grocery store just had a big room in back where they stored a bunch of toilet paper that they then could, you know, move back on the shelves, that no nobody it never would have hit the next level of threshold, right? Nobody would have gone and looked at it and said, "Oh gosh, they're out of toilet paper." Um, or they're running low on toilet paper, or they're they look like they're almost running low on toilet paper. So now my threshold is triggered. Yeah. And so I think there's this there's this way in which these two things really come together, where you've got because of the lack of buffer, the kind of the the effect of someone taking the the kind of prepper taking extra toilet paper that was able to be transmitted to the rest of the system whereas if there had been a big buffer because it had been a less efficient system there had been you know bigger stocks to draw down from then you never would have triggered people that had a higher threshold for call it stockpiling toilet paper totally that's exactly that's perfect that is a great unified theory that is exactly what you had like the it, that is a true thing about how networks will work. And there are all sorts of things that will cause somebody to be this early adopter to a thing. Uh, if it was a different context, the prepper would be the last person to, to commit to the thing, you know, like the, right. Uh, Cause they're, that's why they're preppers. There, there are certain things that they don't want to be part of. Let's say, exactly. um, like they don't want to, uh, my dad is a pretty big prepper and he, I've, I, he will not video chat with me during the Corona stuff because he's afraid that, you know, it's going to tap his phone and he's, uh, you know, going to be delivering state secrets to China. Uh, and so he, do, you, do, you, do you guys talk a lot about a lot of state secrets? That's the problem. We don't, but he thinks we do. So, uh, so in that context, he is the yes. holdout, but yes. in the toilet paper That's context, great. he is the early adopter. People are not one or the other. It's context specific. And so his threshold yes. of conformity changes depending on the issue at hand. And that's a, in, in my book, I, I use all of this to try to explain why uh, the fastest social change that ever took place in recorded human history is um, same-sex marriage norms. Uh, yeah. It was one of these things where it was people had the same attitude year after year for a very long time. And then over the course of about a decade, it completely flipped. In the United States, it went from 68% opposed to 68% in favor of uh, same-sex marriage being uh, decriminalized or legalized. 
And from the perspective of a political scientist, it was like very mesmerizing and complexing. Like how could everybody in the country change their mind instantaneously? Like uh, you could take any individual, 68% of the population, you could put them in a time machine and have them go back just 10 years and they right. would completely disagree with themselves from the previous era. And they'd probably argue about it in the same way that we argue today about any wedge issue. It, but, then yeah. to, but then today, it seems obviously the, the position you should have on this is, is so obvious and moral and deeply entrenched in your values that it doesn't even seem like an opinion anymore. And the, but the way that happened, I mean, that was, that was a cascade like any other. It was no different than the adoption of hybrid corn or the adoption of the fax machine or anything else. It was an innovative idea for people who didn't have much contact with people in the LGBT community. And the way that it cascaded through the network was similar in that the weird thing, and this goes into Duncan Watts stuff, is that there are cascades that happen all the time within the network and then they but they're just absorbed by it because they right. they reach a point where there's not enough people surrounded by enough other people with just the right thresholds for it to go yep. to get to a certain level where it would go beyond their local network. It just dies back down again. And so there were LGBT rights movements all through, I mean, forever, for more than a hundred years. And they just, they would get to a certain point and they'd die down. And you could trace it back to a bunch of different things, but the the most common tracing currently is the trick and trace it back to Stonewall. And, there yep. was a, but there was an event like Stonewall happening in the United States every day yep. for, yeah. for 50 years. It just, so his framing of it, and I love this more than anything. He says, the reason it happens like that is imagine you're driving down a road and you, you, you smoke a cigarette on the same, you're driving down a road that cuts through a national forest and you smoke a cigarette on your trip every day and you flick it out the window every day. And you do that for a decade and not once has it ever caused a terrible uh, forest fire that covered five states, but one day it does. And the reason it does is not because you've changed in any way. It's because right. the network changed. Totally. It, it just so happened that maybe there was a firefighter strike or uh, it was very dry conditions for a week or maybe both. And the cigarette hit a dry patch that then spread to another dry patch. And then it eventually caused the entire thing to catch fire. And the thing I love most about that thought experiment is it could have been a lightning strike. It could have yep. been a, a purposely generated fire. It could have been a cigarette. It doesn't matter. None of those things were what caused the cascade. They're dwarfed by the effect. Yep. The, the state of the network at that particular yep. time is what allowed that to happen. And that's what we saw with the way Stonewall led to a giant cascade that eventually led to the Supreme Court. It was just the right number of people with the right kinds of right. thresholds who all knew each other were there to see it. And the next night people dis did public displays of affection, which were illegal at the time. And they openly violated the norm and they did not face punishment for openly violating the, they, they did, but not severely, not like they had the night before because they had received so much PR, bad PR for that. And so it allowed people to publicly violate the norm and that publicly viol public violation of the norm spread and the news of it spread. And then you get the cascade effect that we mentioned earlier start. And, it, and at a certain point, 
it led to all these other dominoes falling, which came to eventually what it leads to is a, a lot of people in the United States started coming out. And when they, right. and then a lot of people realized, oh, I know a lot of people who are LGBT. Right. And eventually it's in your family. And eventually that leads to there, it goes into the media and then it goes, now there are movies about it. And the cascade moves on and on and on until 10 years into it, it seems unthinkable that you would right. be opposed to same-sex marriage. And that, as odd as it seems, it seems like it's some sort of awakening of moral consciousness. Uh, this, the people who had their consciousness awakened were against it 10 years ago. And and, and, right. and that's it's just amazing. It's amazing to me that, that it can be so deeply tied into our... It's amazing to me that it can be this, the same effect can take place with the adoption of a technology as it can be with an adoption of a norm. Yes, I, I love that. And I'll tell you one thing that, that kind of this is making me think about, which is I, I do, I end up doing a lot of cultural change work in organizations and sometimes it's big organizations. Uh, Microsoft is an, somebody I'm working with, with now, for example. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, smaller organizations. I mean, you can still, you, you still need culture change if you have, you know, 10 people, there's still a culture there. Um, but one of the things that, that in bigger organizations that we try to do is we try to cheat, right? We try to, um, I think the classic like corporate model of culture change or of, of change is to like, you know, have the, the sort of top five people in any organization think about it and say, Hey, this is what we're doing now. Like you all start doing this. Right. And <laughs> obviously that's not, uh, that's not a model that is very closely tied with the, the phenomenology of hu how humans actually work. Um, but what, what cheating is is cheating is saying okay here is you know here is this piece that we want to change in the context that in one of the contexts i'm working on it's around innovation so we want people that have traditionally had more process-based jobs now to be more innovative well how do we do that one you can't just say be more innovative right <laughs> but what you can do and what we're doing is we're looking for a, a cohort a set of people who are more likely to be early adopters of innovation. Mm -hmm. And so if you find that set of people and you give them the tools and the, and the training to innovate successfully, then now you have hit the, the kind of the innovation equivalent of preppers in the toilet paper scenario, right? Mm -hmm. You have, you've hit that group and you have let them do innovation that's successful. And now you can tell stories around that. You can model that. And now you can get the next wave of people who now want to adopt this way of working. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon the group of people, you, you start shifting people from, Hey, I'm excited about this to, Hey, I need to do this or I'm going to be left behind. And it's just, it's interesting because it's a, I mean, it's a model of change that is, um, I would say in some ways, takes more work than the idea of just, we're going to do, you know, this kind of monolithic pronouncement, but is, is just a lot more successful and a lot more able to kind of cascade throughout the organization in a, in a way that's effective. Yeah. It's, it's, it, you have to, those, just as in your book, you're talking about the complexity and slack. And, and when it comes to causing, getting cascades to proliferate, you have to deal with how many nodes are connected to 
each individual and what are the thresholds conformity within those nodes. So those, so those are your two factors and they, they can be manipulated from the outside within an organization. If you have like, like what you're talking about in in a giant network, like the United States, you need a lot of luck. Like the, the, the innovation or the subversion has to strike what they would call a vulnerable cluster, right? Which would be a cluster that has these two variables exactly right. And, but Within an organization, what you would need to do is to transcend luck. And what you would want to take place is uh, create what they call wide bridges, which is you want to make it easier for the cascade to occur. And a wide bridge is what happens when you have two clicks that are joined by two or more connections. So it makes it so that two people in a saturated cluster can exert enough influence through their signaling or persuasion to change at least two minds in the other cluster. And that's that makes it more likely that the that one cluster when it saturates will then saturate its neighbor because you're 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 not just thinking about you're not thinking of the network as a whole you're thinking of it as clusters of nodes which right. are cl- clicks as if you're thinking in high school terms and right. and that happens in organizations whether or not it, the the cluster might be artificially created as in this is the department of whatever but more likely it's an actual, it's, it's organic. It's like formed within the organization on its own. These six people hang out all the time. These six people yes. go have lunch. These six people uh, have desks near each other or they're the ones that come to work about the same time. They're the ones that hang out in the office, they hang out in the uh, parking lot. Um, you would have to institute a way of like identifying those clusters and then connecting two people within it to two people within the other. That is a, strangely enough, that is an actual strategy create what they call it is a wide bridge because one person can't exert enough influence to cause the the to pull a saturated cluster's influence over into another so there's there and there's just there's a million other things but that's one that came to mind yeah no i i I love that and the other thing i mean you know the the kind of the the hybrid corn uh work that um everett rogers did and by the way my dad it turned out worked with him which Whoa. i did not know until a couple of weeks ago which is totally cool my dad's a sociologist um wow uh, i know isn't that crazy um uh and my dad ended up working for the department of agriculture for a long time that was where he spent most of his career but in grad school he he worked with uh ev rogers and his team but you know the the stuff that they study for one of the one of the, the the correlates to being an early adopter, as as you know, is how cosmopolitan you are. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that part. In, I I know, right? And and in in the in the world of uh, Iowa farmers, how cosmopolitan you are means like how often you go to Des Moines. Um, you know how how likely you are to be engaged in. Uh, like kind of civic organizations. Yeah. And how much of a nerd you were. That was my favorite thing is that they were the kind of people that might subscribe to, you know, a science fiction magazine or something like they, they weren't just farmers. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and so they, right. They have this kind of diversity of input already. And so what I think is cool is there are ways, you know, there are kind of, um, uh, organizational proxies you can use to sort of think about this stuff. Right. And I mean, different organizations have different levels of, of ability and sophistication to look at this stuff. But, you know, one of the things I think about again, in the before times, this is more applicable is like, how likely are you to have video calls rather than dial into a conference number? Mm, Right. Like mm. that's like a pretty good modern, um, kind of definition of being cosmopolitan from a technology adoption Mm -hmm. standpoint. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cool stuff here and, um, I'm excited for your book. 
Oh man. Uh, and, and I use hybrid corn because I love, uh, cause you have to go back to it, but it also has that S curve and it, the S curve happened over the course of about 12 years. And every time there's been a seemingly instantaneous change of attitude in the United States, smoking norms, exercise norms, therapy norms, suffrage, um, civil rights, the LGBT movement, all of these things, the like buildup sometimes lasted for multiple decades, but the moment that it flipped always takes place so fast that it feels like there was an epiphany. It feels like the, yeah. the whole country went, Oh, I was wrong about that. Um, and it seems that way, both on the inside and outside, but there's an actual like network, uh, algorithmic mathematical thing taking place underneath that. That is a, that is at its core, something that's happening when, a, when brains interact with brains. And I think that's just insanely amazing to me. Hybrid corn was good the entire time it existed, it, but it took a certain level. It, it had to be adopted in a very specific way before it flipped. And the thing that's most exciting about that to me is that the very same thing happens in the network of neurons in a single brain. When a single right. brain flips from one from believing one thing to another or from holding one attitude to another. Cause the, I realize I'm going way off on a tangent here, but the, there's a, one of my favorite study, possibly my favorite study of all time in psychology is there's a study in, in Harvard in the 1950s where they had people look at playing cards and they had a little buzzer they would press. And whenever they could identify the playing card, they would press the buzzer and then say out loud what they saw. So they'd see like a, you know, an, an ace of heart, a red, they'd say red ace of hearts, click, and then they would get another card and they'd say, you know, uh, a black king of spades and they click it. What they did though, is the, the researchers, they put a bunch of anomalies into the mix and the, they would slowly like turn a dial basically of putting more and more anomalies into the mix. And they were measuring the response time of the, of the, uh, subjects and what they did was at first they would just say the name of this anomaly and move on. And, but as the more anomalies were introduced into the system, the response time started to uh, get longer and longer. And then there was this moment where they just freak out and uh, the quotes from the respondents are so great. They'll say things like, I'll be damned if I know what a heart looks like anymore. Or they would say, they really would. They'd say stuff like that. They would say, it's purple. You know, they would like make up colors. And what was happening in their brains was the, the, the brain assumed that its priors were useful in this situation. Right. And therefore it saw what it expected to see, even though there were slight anomalies. And it would just take the anomaly and sort of pull it back into the domain of what it expected it to be. And so instead of it being an off color, it would pull it over a little bit and say, it's kind of what I expected to see. Right. And then, but at, there were, when there were too many anomalies to do that, that would make you so dangerously incorrect in any situation that the brain has to, at some point give up and say, you better change the way you see the world or you will be put, you will be putting yourself into a, scenario where your current model is going to inaccurately predict the future and put you in the wrong context. And this might end up, you might end up getting eaten because of this. And, yeah. but you also know that it's very dangerous to give up any model that's been working for you your entire life. So that's right. that crisis. They have, every brain has this crisis of like, Oh, I'm going to change my mind now. And then, then you do. 
And as, as soon as they changed their mind, they would say things like, oh, I see, there are anomalies. Or they'd say, oh, you messed with the cards. And then when, mm. as, soon as, as soon as they said that, as soon as they realized that they could be wrong, they stopped being wrong. And they, uh, the response time returned to uh, as quick as it was before. And it's really amazing that as soon as they, could, as soon as they realized there were anomalies in the mix, they saw all the anomalies as what they were. And That's so interesting. It's the oh. best. And I, I write I, in the book. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I write in the book that the epiphany is not the moment you change your mind. The epiphany is the moment you realize that you already have changed your mind. The epiphany oh, is, is, so is the moment you go, oh, I have changed my mind. And the epiphany is, is the fact that you're actually seeing it for what it is instead of what you expect it to be. And that's what happens also in social change, where uh, the, there, were, there were plenty of people that had epiphanies during the, the shift in LGBT norms or the shift in smoking norms. Uh, and you probably don't even remember the epiphany now because you've incorporated that model as the model. But there was a moment at some point where you resisted thinking this way, and then you had this great epiphany, and you probably were, became a there's no uh, there's no zealot like a convert. So there probably was a period of time where you went around like putting your finger in people's chest, going, "You're wrong about this," but because you were having you had such a strong response to it, that's part yeah. of the human condition is to spread that through the network. If there is a vast and widespread incorrect model inside your social group, it is beneficial at the group level to spread right. the news. And the, if that, that happens in the individual brains within individual neural networks, and then it, it cascades through the vast ocean of neural networks that collect together in groups. And then this new thing we have, giant nations of people, it spreads even further. And you can see the exact same curve in one brain that you see in hybrid corn that you see in the adoption of something like... Yes. Um, you know, Zoom. <laughs> right, totally. <laughs> I love well, that. And I, 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 so as you, as you might expect, I read a lot of accident reports, and, um, you know, like aviation accidents, for example, they always have transcripts of, um, not always, but most of the time they have transcripts of of what was being, you know, the cockpit voice recorder, what was being said in the cockpit, and. By the way, I went to the I gave a talk at the National Transportation Safety Board uh, a couple of months ago. And one of the coolest things I got to do was I got to tour their research labs um, mm. and like see where they, you know, like plug in their black boxes and do all the analysis. And, you know, it's 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 cool stuff. So anyway, what, what you're saying about the cards thing is really interesting because one of the things that often happens right before an accident and there's one I'm thinking about in particular that we write out write about in the book. It's uh, a TWA flight where this you know experienced crew of three pilots um, they fly into a mountain and there is some ambiguity in the approach instructions. There's some ambiguity in their in their discussion with air traffic control. But what you can see the moments beforehand is exactly what you were just talking about in the card study. It's like the moment like they, they never realize that they have done something wrong basically until right. it's too late yeah and in those in those moments beforehand they are kind of talking around reality they are sort of bending reality to their model and they're doing it in a way that's that's just like you were talking about with the you know like okay they're kind of mapping purple onto red essentially they are they're saying like Oh yeah, like you know, they're kind of you. You'll hear like dropped conversation threads. You'll hear like just points of of 
like curiosity that don't get answered and don't get resolved. Mm -hmm. And I think this happens even in non-operational context too, right? Where like one of the things that, you know, after a disaster, whatever it is, if it's, if it's an Enron fraud or, you know, an industrial accident, you'll always have people who sort of were speaking up and, and kind of knew what some of the problems were. And, but the, 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 one of the things that's really, really common is that people never resolve their conflicting mental models and they never, they never drop down and start talking about the facts that they're seeing that they're built their beliefs on. Right. Right. And so, and, and, and I think it's really, really interesting because that's in this regime where, you know, again, we do this all the time to, to the kind of point that we were talking about earlier. Most of the time it doesn't really have many consequences, but you look at like one of the, the, kind of business stories we write about in the book is, is targets expansion into Canada. And they, you know, it's a disaster. They lose like $7 billion. They hire and then lay off 17,000 people. Um, it's a crazy, it's a crazy story. And you look at their strategy and there are these moments where sort of, it's clear that it's not working, but either people aren't speaking up about it or they are, but they're, they're kind of leaving things in this implicit space and it's never being picked up on. People are not going back and saying, you know, here are the facts I see. What do you see? Do you see these same facts? And they're never kind of comparing that mm-hmm. factual basis, saying like a layer up on the, do you know the ladder of inference? Mm-hmm. So they're saying just kind of higher on the level of abstraction that they're talking about. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's adaptive. It's, it's bizarrely adaptive oh, because you, totally. If we were to update our priors, just at All the, the first at the first sign of an of an anomaly, we would just be insane. So, yes. and there would be no way that we could have any kind of um, consensual reality. Uh, consensual reality, uh, consensus reality. I mean, consensus reality depends on the fact that we're all kind of operating in the same kind of domain of priors, and we and we update incrementally and stepwise. But the you're talking about flying into the mountain. The problem with like that's you were saying bending reality to their model that I love that phrasing because there's a term to bring this back to mountaineering. There's a term <laughs> in, um, when it first in, in, um, amongst organizations that have to deal with people who get lost in the woods, there's a term called bending the map. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. People get yeah. lost, but they think that, the map, you know, they 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 think they're too, they're good at the, what they do, and they believe that the that they're reading the map correctly. So they bend the map to match the incorrect thing that they've done, and they end up getting more lost because they refuse to accept that maybe they've made a mistake. They believe yep. they believe their model is still correct, and so they they literally you know not literally, but they figuratively bend the map to match their expectations. And I've bent the map before. Oh yeah, tell me. Oh totally. I mean. Uh, one, just on a hike, not realizing that I was, you know, started on the north side of the road and I thought I was on the south side of the road and there were no consequences because I took a path out and then I took the identical path back. But then I realized like, oh shit, I had bent the map. Uh, and then flying. So not only, I, I mean, I fly, but I also teach people to fly. And, um, like with, with students, especially as an instructor who has a, you know, kind of more experience and B is not physically controlling the airplane. So I've got more kind of brain processing cycles. You can see students start to, and then fall into the trap of bending the map where they, 
you know, it's, I mean, professional airline pilots do it too, right? Well, they'll, they will land at the wrong airport because it has some similar properties. It might be, you know, five or, or six miles away from another airport. Um, and yeah, it, it kind of, it happens all the time. Um, you also see people bend the map when they sort of don't understand something that, um, automation is doing right. So they will, as I say, you're flying with, they're flying with an autopilot and, they will put themselves into um, heading mode and they think that they're actually following a GPS track. And so it might look like they're on track at the beginning, but over time it'll diverge and people just, they, they don't notice it. And, and when they do notice it, they will justify it with, with something else. They will justify their kind of um, lack of awareness by explaining it away in, in a different way. Um, it's, it's really, it's fascinating. And it's, I mean, you know, it's, it's one of the things you said before, I think deserves a little bit of expansion. It's like, yes, we don't update our priors all the time. And it's not just because we go insane. It's because the whole point of our, our priors is that we have a limited, a finite amount of processing resources, right? Mm. We have a finite amount of mental bandwidth. And I remember I was just writing about this the other day. I moved to, to Tokyo when I was in my mid twenties, uh, and lived there for a couple of years. And it's like, I was tired the first six months and thinking back on it, I think I was tired because I just, I did not, I had to think about things consciously much, much more. Cause I did not have priors that applied to my daily life in the same way in a lot yeah. of different ways. Yeah. That's, um, that's, that's why March lasted a year. Uh, and, uh, yeah. um, and April went by in a flash because, uh, we were, every experience was new. We're constantly we were like information omnivores, give me more, give yep. me more. And we're laying down a steady stream of new memories and new, uh, and new additions where we were flattening and sharpening our models completely the entire time. And so the, the like network of experiences and memories, uh, was dense for a number of weeks. And now when you look back on it, that's dense in comparison to what you did after that, which was mostly, you know, fuck around on totally. Netflix, right? Cause you're like, totally, it's over. Um, totally. and that, that's, uh, <laughs> and I so that's what happened to you in, in Tokyo, I would assume. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, um all right, let's finish this. Uh, <laughs> that was a yeah, great, longest was a, podcast recording ever, right? That was a great tangent. That was a great tangent. Um, yeah, plus that's you know you tapped into what I've been obsessed with for for years. So. You were talking one last thing. You mentioned Novo Nordisk did something in relation to the to what we were talking about earlier about trying to account for complexity and coupling, and they came up with a response team of some sort who actually yeah. deals with it. Tell us about that, yeah. and we'll end there. That sounds great. Yeah, and I, I think so. Novo Nordisk had this big, this big kind of commercial disaster where they had to, they had issues with the quality of the insulin they were producing. Which you know, if one of your major businesses is producing high quality, you know, well, well controlled insulin, that's a pretty big problem. Um, they ended up kind of costing them something like a hundred million dollars, uh, and so it was a big wake up call. And and one of the ways that that this disaster was talked about in the company was that it was this kind of game of telephone, sort of what we were just talking about. Somebody at a lower level would raise an operational concern and, you know, there'd be a lot of detail and texture and context around it. But then as it, as it filtered up the chain, 
it would get condensed to you know one bullet point on slide 34 of a 90 slide PowerPoint deck. And so <laughs> there just wasn't the attention needed for it. And so after this happened, they they you know they figured out that this was an issue. They had to to throw away, they had to do a big audit, throw away a bunch of insulin, get one of their competitors to to take over their manufacturing obligations. Um, what they did was they created this team that basically went from group to group over the the time scale of a couple of years and just made sure that information wasn't getting stuck in places. They just made sure that issues were being discussed, that, you know, taboo things were coming up and, and weren't actually taboo. Um, and it, what, what it did was it gave, you know, this managers and, and the sort of senior leadership of this big organization, real visibility into what was going on and real visible, real understanding into, into stuff so that concerns weren't getting stuck. And I think that is such an important thing to, I think it's, it is easy to, um, kind of underweight the contributions or the concerns of people that are closest to operations. And what Novo Nordisk tried to do was build a sort of system that made sure that information was flowing as it should. And, and also, you know, gave coaching to managers that maybe, uh, unconsciously or or maybe intentionally were shutting down dissent and discussion in their groups. And I think that back to the topic of of getting lost, I think one of the things that that's really useful that we can do for ourselves, but also in groups is just be open to introducing some kind of cognitive noise, be open to introducing constraints to our thinking so that we can really come up with more, more creative solutions and we can do a better job of, um, we can do a better job of kind of shaking. I, I think of it as cognitive noise, just sort of shaking up our, our patterns of thought so that we can come to different, more creative conclusions. Mm. Yeah. I'm a big, I love the idea of having devil's advocates and ombudsman totally. and, and just somebody in there to like, uh, whose job is to be the asshole you know, who says like, totally. maybe, uh, maybe you're all wrong. You know, who's, who's, some way you eliminate the social costs for one person or one group of people, and that can yes. deeply uh, improve an organization by taking group think off the table, or at least reducing the heat of it a good bit. And you could choose to do that in an organization. You talk about it in the book. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. It's a real it's a real asset to organizations that are able to do that. Yeah. Well, let's get uh, so that we can have an ending to this thing. What do you say is your big takeaway? Just something to give to the world when it comes to, especially in these massively uncertain times. Uh, I say that with cringe all in my throat because I get an email that <laughs> I get an email that says that every day. Totally. In these massively uncertain times, have you tried Cool Ranch Doritos? Um, <laughs> there's 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 certainly fantastic. Uh, <laughs> um, and every every Dorito is passed under a UV light uh, at our central <laughs> processing facility. Um, easy to digest, so you won't need too much TP. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, if you were advising or you're out, well, I, don't, I don't even know what to, to ask you, honestly. Just what's a great takeaway for right now for anyone listening or maybe someone who does have a, an organization that they can uh, speak up for? Um what can we be doing with the knowledge that you have generated in creating this book and, and your work in general? Yeah, I, I think I think there are uh, I think if there were one real takeaway to to give here, uh, it would be that 
we've got to think about the world as a system. Hmm. Uh, we humans are often bound into kind of pretty narrow views of cause and effect, and we're not good at seeing delayed effects. We're not good at seeing feedback loops. And I think we live in a world now where we can't afford that anymore. So I think we need to start to, we need to be better at thinking in systems from a business perspective, from a political perspective, from a societal perspective, but also just from the perspective of, of kind of education and how we talk about the world and how we talk about uh, politics and society, how we think about social change as, as we've been discussing. I think that there's really, you know, one of the things that I struggle with when, when talking with people is to define what is the system. Cause I think there is a deep way in which everything really shows up as a system. And most of the time we don't see things as a system because they just work. Mm. But the more that we get, um, the more that things get pushed out to the edges, things get pushed out to the margins, the more we have shocks like, coronavirus, like toilet paper supply chain interruptions, the more we can start to see that that really most of the things that just work, work because they are systems that have been very, very narrowly tuned to the set of parameters that are usually around. And I think we're living in a world where we are going to be seeing more and more perturbations, more and more departures from that normal set of parameters. And we've got to build our, we've got to think about things from a systems perspective, and we've got to build in resiliency from the start. And the, 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 the companies, the groups, the countries that are, are going to be, be, that are better at that are going to be the ones that survive and the ones that start to, um, you know, the, the ones that, that win basically. I love this. I'm, I'm typing it into Google because I can't remember uh, the Card the Kardashev scale. That's what that makes me think of. Like every time I think about th this Corona, one of the things I thought about with the Corona thing, and the one what you just said, the idea that we have to think in systems. You know, we've become a. Um, it's become very apparent that we are a interconnected society, even if we are separated into these nations and states, and uh, you know, there's that. A Kardashev scale where you type zero civilizations and type one civilizations and type two. And uh, I remember of all people, Michio Kaku, who oftentimes says ridiculous, stupid things, but he did say something that I really liked where he was said that the, when, when any large scale civilization tries to go from, uh, I think it's type zero to type one, where you become a sort of unified people, um, there's a giant pushback against that. Um, Related to the pushback against updating your models, related against everything else, which is kind of ironic. Um, and I think that there's a tendency to just be in a state of denial that you, the idea that you can be uh, uh, be an island unto yourself is, uh, that was certainly demonstrated as being completely impossible. And if you were, if you were playing uh, any of those pandemic games on your phone, you should have seen that by now. Um, but no, it had to actually happen. It had to actually reach Madagascar before we saw that it was possible. Uh, I don't know what I'm saying because I've lost my mind, but, uh, I agree with you totally. And I thank you very much for coming on the program. <laughs> <laughs> what a fantastic close. <laughs> um, tell everybody how they can keep, keep up with you. That's a good way to make it an actual ending. 
Yeah, good. Um, yeah, so uh, chrisclearfield.com is where you can find me and a lot of my writings. Um, I just I have all this free time now, which is not really true, but um, I just uh, I just started a mailing list. So it's a place where I'm having conversations with you know people that like this kind of conversation and also people who you know think own businesses, think about how to kind of you know op- op- make their lives simpler, less stress, more productivity. Um, and you can sign up for that chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Um, and David, as you and I discussed, I'm also launching a podcast of the same name. So Chris Clearfield or the breakdown with Chris Clearfield. I'm oh, that's fantastic. Uh, I hope everyone checks into it. I dig all your stuff and, uh, I hope I get a chance to get on the podcast and do take up two hours of that podcast time. (laughs) And, uh, I really appreciate it. Best of luck in everything. Hey, thanks, David. This was really. Thanks for listening to stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways. Sign up for the breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months I bundle together three or four influential books often written or recommended by guests from the show. And I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners, subscribe to the show, and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember... If you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor, and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening, and be well until our next breakdown.